Welcome to the Onassis Air Conversations. My name is Mirto Katsimicha. I'm a curator and cultural worker based in Athens and your host in this series of recorded encounters with the participants of Onassis Air. Founded on the principles of learning and doing with others, Onassis Air is an international research residency program in Athens initiated by the Onassis Foundation in 2019. They say that what happens in one place stays in that place. I cannot find a better way to describe all the things that have been happening inside the Onassis Air House since I first entered as a participant of the Critical Practices program in fall 2019. The truth is, it is not easy to transmit an open-ended process of relationing which is very personal and relevant to a specific place and moment in time. How can I then give you a glimpse into that process? Everything starts with a conversation. Throughout this series, I'll be speaking with the Onassis Air participants to shed light on their artistic practices and needs, as well as to reflect on ways of being and working together. Today, I'm in conversation with Stella Ioannidou, an artist, designer and urban researcher based between Athens and New York. Stella's practice oscillates between the fields of architectural and urban research, of critical cartography and visual experimentation in an attempt to analyze and reflect on existing systems of governance, economy and infrastructure, as well as on the socio-special dimensions that reproduce conditions of injustice. Stella is a participant of the School of Infinite Rehearsals Movement 7, with a collective research focus on the notion of community economies. Today, we discuss how the spaces we share can help us construct narratives of mutual sustenance. Thank you for having me, Mirto. Thank you for accepting my invitation. I would like to start uh, this conversation today by discussing a little bit about your practice that has adapted to different forms over the years, but always bringing forth, if I could say, your ongoing interest into unearthing facts, looking on it either from a social or a special and material perspective, the notion of stratification is at the intersection of the various fields within which you develop your work. And I would like to ask you, what are the layers you are mostly interested in undigging? Um, I would say that my practice has always revolved around identifying patterns, underlying structures, hidden narratives, and layers in one way or another, even though I have shifted in medium quite a bit. Um, Initially, I studied civil engineering in Athens, and I did my thesis on computational geotechnics because I found that to be the more research-oriented field in the school. Uh, I then moved to New York, and uh, that's where I studied architecture. And within the discipline, I gravitated towards a more um, urban, socio-spatial, and analytical approach, which connected with skill sets that I acquired in my undergrad studies in engineering. But I went from studying the relationship between soil, foundation, and superstructure, to studying the interaction of larger-scale urban systems, and how they determine how we live, or how these systems produce or reproduce social inequality. I am really interested in identifying and making visible narratives that perhaps go unacknowledged. And that is something that can happen in many mediums. For instance, in a past work of mine, I've used data analysis, data visualization, and critical cartography to research mass incarceration in New York City. 
and the connection between poverty, racial minorities, and targeted arrests by the NYPD. In that case, a quantitative approach was really powerful, and it allowed me to create a compelling case for the structural failures of the city. But in other works, I have also struggled with the limitations of that kind of top-down quantitative approach, and I've run into dead ends, especially when I'm trying to communicate someone's lived experience. And I always ask myself, how is this work representing and doing justice to the people and their embodied experiences, those who are most affected by uh, these power structures of inequality? Which is why I have been exploring other mediums as well, like writing and visual experimentation, um, also new media. They give me kind of a different storytelling flexibility. So to answer your question of what layers I'm mostly interested in unearthing, I think what I care about the most is finding the right frameworks, mediums, and tools that can let me see through the urban, historical, historical, or other layers of a place and stitch through them in order to tell a story the way it needs or deserves to be told. Over the past couple of years, uh, there is an ongoing and developing discourse that traverses the art field, among many other social spheres, around care practices, affective and reproductive labor, and its redistribution. In times when we are facing more and more the impact of climate change and the scarcity of resources, and when the housing crisis and the economic qualities intensify, I'm wondering how can we build more equitable structures and how can architecture play a more decisive role towards an ethics of care? Um, this is something that came up quite a bit during our collective residency here how the art and architecture discourse has lately shifted towards ideas of maintenance, care, reproductive labor, etc. And um, I think these ideas surfaced in our collective conscience very organically during the pandemic for everyone, because many of us became confronted with precarity and a complete absence of networks of support or care. And these needs remain urgent to this day now. But I find myself kind of conflicted with the discourse and how it has been co-opted by large art institutions or architecture offices that pay lip service to a theoretical restructuring of our relationship to capital and each other, while at the same time they produce and reproduce internally exploitative work structures. So the care discourse on a high level becomes just a way to gain cultural capital and in turn access actual capital in the form of funding by structures like the EU or the Mellon Foundation, for example. Um, I think before architecture can speak about ethics of care, it needs to have a moment of internal reckoning and recognize that the discipline is pervaded by an ethos of individualism. What is glorified within architecture is the figure of the genius who is unrestrained, is obsessed with realizing like a singular vision that is uncompromising. And in that vision, every worker becomes disposable. From the construction workers that build the project to the architectural workers that design it. All of them remain invisible in their labor. So the way the discipline works right now, both in professional practice, but even in like academic or exhibition context, is entirely antithetical to any ideas of interdependence or mutual sustenance. And an architecture that is predicated on subjugation and exploitation will only and can only perpetuate those values in its output. Where I'm finding hope though, is in the younger generation of art and architecture workers who are acknowledging the impasse we're at, not as a theoretical discourse, but it's like the material and embodied reality they live. Um, a couple of years ago, I started collaborating on a research project around labor and care with Ryan Liefeld and Hasbrook Miller at a time when we were all feeling dissent and disappointment towards uh, 
exploitative models um, we came across in our professional lives, both as art and architectural workers. And our research was driven by our need to engage with uh, different ways of working and knowing and existing. Um, we engaged with uh, feminist and indigenous knowledge. Uh, we looked at the natural world where we noticed that resilient and healthier forests tend to be those that encourage communication and cooperation through their mycorrhizal networks. And uh, kind of realized that to us, humans like trees don't stand alone. You know, we went back and forth between uh, looking outward and looking in and uh, prioritizing mutual support during our research project and searching for more instances of interdependence and commoning that could occur both within the architecture field, but in general. Um, we identified some existing ones. Uh, for example, young architects and students um, create these like, kind of networks uh, of um, support between friends and colleagues. Um, it's common, um, almost like an underground shared economy where in order to access prohibitively, prohibitively, prohibitively expensive um, but necessary resources and allow for um, people to do work and like develop their ideas, um, you know, share passwords, um, uh, things that they have access to through universities, through offices. And um, yeah, that has involved into an underground shared economy that is governed by many of the similar principles that, uh, of that of the forest. And so when you're participating in this kind of network and uh, commoning enclosed resources, we take care of our community, we form relationships of mutual aid and responsibility with each other. And so I think it's really important to identify these successful instances of commoning and mutual aid so that we can actually begin to visualize what equitable structures could look like. And hopefully from there, build more solidarity, both within the existing profession by forming unions, for example, but also beyond by realizing completely new models of working horizontally and sharing together. I'm glad that you brought these contradictions that exist within uh, the this discursive field around care practices. And I'd like to... Uh, to go back to a project that you mentioned uh, before, I'm thinking that this shared res resources, this uh, this network of shared resources that you were just describing, is a network between peers, between people that have uh, the same level of access to certain resources. And I'd like to go back to your previous project um, into mass incarceration in New York. And your methodology with data visualization and analytics and all that uh, stuff that you described and um, ask you, how did you um, approach these communities? How did you approach this theme um, from this posi position that you had, this position of access? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I, there were, I think, kind of two parts to my work. And one of it was a completely top-down research where I had access to this like open source data. And uh, that was ex entirely separate from community work. And then my community work, um, I was uh, actually going to the Rikers Jail, which is the, um, the main jail of New York City. Um, I was going there once a week for a few months uh, as part of uh, this um 
project um, that was organized by a social, through a social worker. But it's also a very complicated um, issue. And in the U.S., I'm obviously coded as white. And to acknowledge that this is not, I'm not part of the community that is being targeted by uh, NYPD arrests. Uh, 95% of people who are detained in Rikers are black and Latino. And so I had no intention of uh, trying to access a community and perhaps um, enact some exploitative kind of um, uh, power dynamic with them, Um, which is why um, I kind of focused on uh, creating a tool that would uh, be useful in the activist uh, circles. Um, Me and Clara Dykstra, uh, we both uh, researched um, the timeline from arrest to arraignment in New York City. It's kind of like the first 24 to 36 hours um, between arrest and arraignment. And uh, it is a very um, uh, elaborate and obscure process. There is no guide for it. So we kind of created this uh, visual guide. It's an animation where you go from... uh, Um, it's like a spatial timeline where you go from like the moment of arrest and you can see all the spaces and uh, the different stakeholders you interact with um, from police officers to lawyers uh, to different uh, bureaucratic entities. And that can be used uh, obviously by anyone, but definitely is useful within the activist realm, which uh, we were a part of. And uh, it actually became more useful in... The 2020 Black Lives Matter um, uh, protests, when uh, some of the um, uh, some of the regulations that um, were in place before had to, well, they were changed just to allow for um, um, basically violation of protesters' rights. For example, um, there was a curfew in place that week of the protests at 7 p.m. You weren't allowed to go out anymore. And breaking that ter- curfew became a class B misdemeanor. So suddenly you had to like enter a whole different uh, scale of bureaucracy, which you could like kind of know what was happening by like using this guide and knowing what to expect and what your rights are. And also, um, and during that week, uh, they revoked the habeas corpus um, act, which. Uh, Basically, that act protects uh, the individual by being held somewhere for more than 24 hours before being arraigned. So within 24 hours of arrest, you have to see a judge. And they revoked it that week and had people during the COVID pandemic actually stay in jail for longer than they should. So, yeah, like considering how we can actually be useful, considering our identities within these um, works that we're doing is like really important and it's something that I'm trying to always be mindful of. You also brought uh, this metaphor of the arboreal network, and I'm really glad that you brought that in because I think uh, it serves as a great metaphor for the term community economies, as it was coined by Gibson and Graham, um, where it describes this collective negotiation of our interdependence between all life forms. And I'm interested Going back to the School of Infinite Rehearsals and its theme, community economies, how did this term resonate with you? Um, I guess I have a double framework for this term. Uh, One is like coming from Greece, I can't help but have faith in those ideas. Um, I have witnessed community economies with various degrees of success here because there's a long tradition of like self-organized communities And uh, I don't just mean like the squads or anarchist collectives in Athens, but also 
um, overall in Greece and in Greek villages and islands, um, like Ikaria, for example, that has a radical left heritage, um, there's an aspiration towards autonomy and smaller scale local economies that depend on community bonds. On the other hand, from a US perspective, as we see economic violence unfolding at the same time, there's also endless talk of community and community building. And so that's a paradox. And it is often because any existing commons um, have already been threatened or destroyed by a capitalist ideology and competitiveness, individualism. And now the term community is being brought back in and used in order to ask of exploited people to fill in for the structural failures of the state. And this neoliberal apparatus has been at work in Greece as well for some time now. So I think it's important to be aware of how this term can be instrumentalized for the wrong reasons and how it can depend on the further exploitation of marginalized people. I'm speaking specifically to the idea of like, what is community? Um, and I like to think to what uh, Silvia Federici says that no common community is possible unless we refuse to base our life and our reproduction on the suffering of others. And a community has to be intended not as an exclusive group or a gated reality who have kind of people shared interests that are separate from the others. Um, but it has to describe a kind of a quality of relations, a principle of cooperation and of responsibility to each other, to the earth, uh, the seas, the animals uh, and beyond. During this uh, seven weeks that uh, you spent together, in a sense, one could say that you formed your own uh, community economy. The question of resources, the question of access to certain resources became a recurrent thread of your collective research, as far as I know. And uh, I'm curious to hear more about this commoning uh, of resources within your group. Right. Um, I think for most of us, having access to an institution and a collective fund was a departure from our reality outside the residency. So naturally, we talked a lot about our access to these resources, the responsibility that came with it, especially as we were supposed to be thinking about community economies. So we consider our extended networks and communities, you know, our mycorrhizal networks, and how we can bring them to communication with our group, um, have a conversation and exchange with them, and acknowledge their time and expertise as labor that should be compensated. So this way, we wanted to create more access to the institutional resources, but also gain more knowledge and perspectives. Um, and, and so in, with that line of thinking, we organized a few visits and events uh, with local initiatives, both in Thessaloniki, where we traveled in our, I think, uh, second week, actually, of the residency, uh, but also in Athens. And uh, for example, for one of them, I invited Dilektra Karadza, who is a member of Ergo Collective. She's also a cultural worker in Athens. And uh, together we facilitated a conversation around exploitation in the art world specifically from a female and feminist perspective. And we also discussed about the potential, but also limitations of collectives. Because um, are, uh, are they a form, are they a medium in which we could be allowed to distribute power more horizontally, like acknowledge uh, reproductive labor and center it? And it was a really vivid conversation. Um, a lot came up about how each of us in the group perceives the idea of a collective. Um, some people were talking about how a collective has to, it's about building larger structures in order to facilitate big groups. And um, others were more interested in the intimate scale um, where we create space between a small group with each other and like really form like a collective voice. 
Um, another thing we acknowledged as a resource within our group, like very quickly after we started, was each other and the value of being together for this limited amount of time. Because it's really rare that you can bring so many different perspectives in a room. So apart from considering community needs beyond uh, the residency, each one of us was asked whether they have a specific need that could be fulfilled by the group, material or otherwise. And in some cases, the most valuable resources, resource was taking time to think together about an individual's project or work or problem and pulling together our experiences to create a repository of knowledge, like essentially commoning knowledge within the group. You mentioned your trip to Thessaloniki, and I'm wondering whether you had the chance to meet with any communities there and whether you had the chance to witness an example of a community economy. Yeah, actually, we were very lucky because a member of our group is from Thessaloniki. So he was kind and gracious enough to facilitate uh, some meetings with uh, initiatives that he knows there. So we did like an exercise at the end of uh, our residency um, where each of us had to say what they're taking away. Maybe it could be, you know, just takeaways from the residency. And it could be just like a, a memory, a word, anything. And uh, we kind of like uh, did a broken telephone exercise where each of us told the other person what we're thinking. And then they had to write it down. And we kind of wrote this all together, created this like soup of everyone. And looking back into that, we saw that um, more than a few people uh, had uh, referenced our visit to the kindergarten in Thessaloniki. So I think that one was a really meaningful one for us. Um, the, it's a it's an initiative called Little Tree, and um, it's um, female-led uh, kindergarten, self-organized. Um, I think they follow the Montessori kind of uh, teaching, and um, they have a limited amount of children, obviously, because that's what they can accommodate. But the way they're thinking about their initiative was um, really... Um, really powerful and um, everything was very well thought out. And uh, specifically one thing that they said to us that I think uh, perfectly kind of summed up what community economies is about is that um, they never turn away someone who can't pay because if an individual doesn't have access to resources, it is not the individual's problem. It is a community problem. <laughs> That's the perfect way to uh, to take me to my next question. Uh, the invisible time of labor the difference between productive and unproductive time actually became the central point of your collective research that attempted to put in place a caring infrastructure in the form of a gift to the community of Onassis Air, if I could say that. And I'm thinking about this notion of reciprocity and what Greber describes as from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs. I was wondering how does this principle feed into your collective thinking? Yeah, um, as I said before, being in a position of institutional access, we all definitely felt collective responsibility towards um, our respective communities, also the artist community at large. And um, we took the time to acknowledge the privilege of being selected for this residency. And we thought about the process that brought us here from us taking the time to apply to then getting selected. And in this case, ours was a success story. So our labor for application was ultimately remunerated and compensated. But all of us have applied for things and got rejected. And the labor that goes into applying uh, is invisible. 
And it always falls on the individual artist or researcher or whatever to subsidize with their time and resources and labor a system that just perpetuates precarity and financial instability and then ultimately rewards only a select few. So we started thinking if there was anything we could do within our limited time and resources to make this system more sustainable. And the initial idea was to create a collective fund through which we could uh, give financial support to anyone, mainly from the art world, who is trying to apply for a grant or a residency or some other form of funding. But uh, given the temporality of our group, managing this fund would present a challenge over time. So we shifted to an event-based idea, kind of a one-off gesture, where people would bring uh, to our closing party, uh, the residency closing party, one rejected application, and they would get compensated for the unacknowledged time and effort they put into it. Greber also makes clear that uh, sharing is not just about morality, it's also about pleasure. And this is actually how you decided to close the circle of the School of Infinite Rehearsals with a party and with this collective gathering. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, uh, integrating our collective gesture into the closing party of the residency was not a coincidence. <laughs> Uh, We felt it was important to center collective joy and pleasure in whatever we do, and uh, particularly because pleasure is often considered an individualistic pursuit, uh, often is embedded within capitalism and consumerism. I think it's essential to decouple it from these frameworks and consider it as an inextricable part of commoning. We build community by living with joy together. And uh, this idea is even more radical when the community involves people who are traditionally excluded from access to pleasure, either because of race or gender. And that's when pleasure can become political and instrumental in the process of healing and happiness. Well, it's a pleasure talking with you today. But uh, before we close this discussion, uh, know that you're splitting your time between Athens and New York. And I'm wondering what's next for you. Well, as a first step, a few days of rest, (laughs) Uh, perhaps reconnecting with nature in the next few days and weeks. Um, But uh, professionally, I am working on a new project right now um, around, I'm kind of in the beginnings, it's around fictions of heritage and identity that exist in different cities of the Mediterranean. And um, looking into how those fictions contribute to the process of nation making by establishing sameness between people. And obviously my starting point was Athens, but I'm now part of a traveling residency around the Mediterranean. So I've become interested in bringing different cities in conversation and understand how in each case state power upholds certain narratives about uh, its people and the country, and they often manifest in absurdity, and how these contradictions are embedded in the everyday and they can shape individual subjectivities. So... Obviously, this is um, Mediterranean-based, so Athens is still very much part of uh, <laughs> my locales. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to be back and forth for the next uh, the next year, I think, at least. Well, I hope that uh, we continue seeing each other at the space. Definitely. Um, it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for all your questions. Thank you for listening. If you want to listen to more conversations, please subscribe to our channel. You can find more about the UNASSE residency program and each participant at www.onasses.org. This series is produced by UNASSE Thanks to Nikos Kolias, the sound designer of the series, and to Nikos Liberis for providing the original music intro theme. <laughs>